Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Michael Weston and Fiona Glenan from Burn Notice. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest, Anna Papard. Welcome, Anna. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I just have to say right off the top that this happened because I just tweeted out, I really want somebody to ask me to talk about Burn Notice on a podcast. And you found the tweet within minutes like I think and emailed me and I was so happy. I was like, social media works. I'm never leaving this bird app. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am uh, if former guests ever say like, oh, I wish I could talk about this somewhere. I'm always like, uh, we are always looking for people to come on and talk about stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> I very happily uh, jumped on that and said, let's let's talk about burn notice, which is a series that I'd kind of had like in the back of my head, like, oh, we should go talk about it. Um, Burn Notice was an espionage TV series created by Matt Nix that aired for seven seasons between 2007 and 2013. Specifically, we're looking at the 18th episode from season four, which was called Last Stand. It was directed by Steven Sergic and written by Matt Nix, and it originally aired on December 16th, 2010. The premise of Burn Notice is that a trained spy, Michael Weston, is fired or burned from his agency that he worked for, and he now has no resources, meaning like he has no actual government ID or social security number uh or uh you know or bank accounts or anything uh so he is in miami and he has his spy resources so he takes random jobs that require a spy skills while trying to find out who burned him at his old job and it starred jeffrey donovan as michael weston the burn spy uh gabrielle anwar as fiona glennan a former ira fighter and michael's ex-girlfriend bruce campbell as sam axe a former spy and navy seal and sharon glass as madeline weston michael's mom <laughs> i love this miami retiree that is pulled into all these spy <laughs> adventures <laughs> she just wants us to chain smoke and be left alone and yet she's always <laughs> getting pulled into these uh stories um and burn notice is a show that I kind of been thinking about because it, I remember it being pretty popular uh, when it was on the air uh, for the USA network is where it was airing. And it was part of a USA network era called the blue sky era, where they were trying to do these kind of um, fun genres that people knew, but with uh, a light and slightly comedic tone to them. And so you got things like psych and, uh, and, and this show and white collar, um, and Royal Pains is like the the doctor version of, of them doing a spin yeah, on it. Yeah. And, and they really created, I thought, a strong brand identity where people knew what to expect from a show that was airing on the network at that time. And a lot of people were going looking for it. And then they just kind of stopped <laughs> and burned that brand identity down after spending probably about a decade, I think, building it up and finding an audience that really was looking for exactly those kinds of shows. And it's always been strange to me. I mean, I say saying this in 2022, 20, uh, it might not be the strangest decision a media empire has made <laughs> <laughs> in order of, re, you know, in terms of rebranding and burning bridges with creative talent and, and fans. Uh, but it just, um, right before we started recording, I think we said the they, USA kind of tried chasing the uh, prestige television uh, dragon with shows like, um, Oh, what was the 
Mr. Robot, particularly, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they kind of like left the Blue Sky era behind, uh, trying to, you know, with some of those shows on those spin. And now I can't tell you what the USA Network's identity is at all. Um, and yet they're they're still making psych reunion movies. And I think it was possibly that I'd watch the psych reunion movie, the latest one, which was delightful and was just filled with rage and regret that we don't have a bird notice version of that because so much potential to see what Michael and Fiona have been up to since the end of the series. Yes. Uh, and I watched... I want to, I'm pretty sure I watched the whole series. Uh, I, I didn't start it right when it came out, but my brother uh, had recommended it to us and my wife and I kind of were able to catch up. And I think we were pretty much watching it as it was releasing there at the end. I have not watched an episode since then. And I turned on this episode and it was like seeing old friends and I knew yeah. exactly the world and the tone and everything. And it took me right back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was just fun. Uh, to to be back in that world, and like you're saying, if, if they could do that with a new Burn Notice movie, I would I would definitely watch it. Um, Anna, do you remember how you discovered Burn Notice? <laughs> I have this vague memory of it was on one of the streaming services, probably Netflix, for a while, and I was sick. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, well, I like spy stuff and this Burn Notice show is here. So I started watching it with the intent that, oh, this is going to be like a crappy show that I'm going to make fun of. Um, After about five episodes, I had to admit to myself that I really enjoy this show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, by the end of the first season. Where it's like, oh, I'm going to binge this just because I need something on. I don't really care about this. And then it's like. I'm staying up way too late watching this because I have to know what happens next. <laughs> yeah, so I got better and I kept watching it. And it is scary to me how much this show is inside my mind in terms of <laughs> exactly the type of thing that would appeal to me. Like, I always try to sell people on the show as like, it's James Bond, but he gets fired and then has to go to... Miami and reconnect with the women in his life and also Bruce Campbell is there what's not to love (laughs) yeah and uh it's something about the way they um thread this needle of an awful lot of violence so much violence uh but also fun (laughs) And, and it's not like gratuitous violence it's just I I could not keep track of at one point I was like I wonder if I could count how many guns are pulled out in this episode uh, and then, like, I looked away and I'm like, oh, no, I think I missed seven. <laughs> I, I, a huge influence on the show is the A-Team. Uh-huh. It is very, very similar in many, many ways. And then it, there's sort of a legacy of this type of thing, you know, the MacGyver you know, plots and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. I mean, that goes back to, like, the original Mission Impossible TV show, which was an influence on the A-Team and then through to something like Burn Notice. But... It's this hyper violence that is cartoony and then it's and very sanitized. deliberate. Yes, sanitized. Yeah. And then very deliberate about people not getting killed. Like Michael mm-hmm. Weston, there's a couple of instances in the show where he kills people and it is shocking because he doesn't usually. And even in the episode we're going to talk about, <laughs> there's a big, you know, ninja fight on the roof with him and a guy and just like breaking bones and stuff and it's very deliberate like he doesn't kill that guy he could Mm -hmm. and yet he knocks him out and ties him up and does not kill him because michael weston does not kill people and it's very a-teamy the way it'll do like explosions and show people walking away from the explosion Mm -hmm. like 
and cars very very similar exactly exactly (laughs) well and also like there's one moment in this very episode where he like rappels down the side of a building and there is basically an army all pointing guns Mm -hmm. at the side of the building and firing as he goes down the side and you have no sense that he's ever in danger. <laughs> like no. There, there's no concern. These are stormtrooper level accuracy. Uh, <laughs> the, the people that are firing guns in this show. But that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about this episode is kind of the subversion of expectations regarding consequences. So that's something that we can get into talking about. Mm-hmm. All right, let's run through a little bit more trivia and then we'll, we'll dig into this episode itself. Uh, so the show is filmed in Miami and to do that, they rented out an old convention center. Uh, that my when I looked it up, it sounded like it was going to be demolished and they built permanent sets there. Um, and then the original agreement for that ran out for after the sixth season and the city really upped the price for the seventh season, which may be one of the reasons why it was the final season is the budget started to get a little more expensive as old contracts were getting renewed and the show was popular at that point. Um, Let's see. A prequel movie about Sam Axe was produced in 2011. Jeffrey Donovan directed the movie and um, there have also been five tie-in novels published between 2008 and 2011. I've not read any of them. I cannot speak at all to the quality of those novels, but they exist out there. I have read all of them. (laughs) 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 And actually, they're pretty fun. They're pretty fun. It captures the tone of the series pretty well. There is also a series of tie-in comic books produced by USA Network that the last time I checked a few years ago, they were still available online. I can't speak to whether they are currently available online. Right. Um, let's see, despite, I'm just gonna read off the note I had. I've, I guess I've kind of already covered some of this. Despite lots of explosions, gunshots, wounds, and deaths, the show kept a lighthearted tone thanks to tongue-in-cheek on-screen graphics and dry descriptions of spy skills provided in voiceover by Jeffrey Donovan. Um, and, and like a lot of times, like, you'll see them like prepping something that's gonna be incredibly violent and he's just doing this kind of dry description of what a so spy great. needs to do right now. And something about that juxtaposition just lightens the whole mood. <laughs> I don't know what it is exactly, uh, but it, it works so well. Um, and then the other thing that I saw, the pilot was written by Matt Nix and it won an Edgar Allan Poe award and Edgar Allan Poe awards recognize mystery writing because Edgar Allan Poe's the father of the detective story. Um, and it won for best television teleplay. And I wouldn't call it a mystery per se, but also I get it. <laughs> um, I will, I will stand up for like the Matt Nix penned episodes of Burn Notice as being real tight. 43 Mm -hmm. minute episodes of television i think that's very true of the episode we're going to discuss today just packs a lot in has a really clear narrative structure and is just a really well-written episode yeah and every one thing that stood out to me watching this is like every character had their bit of business to do but it it all was propelling the overall narrative forward and just Um, so refreshing like as, a, as like uh, uh, something a little bit different than the era of prestige television in which we have decompressed storytelling to go back to something like this, where it's a complete, like it's a very serialized story mm-hmm. in Burn Notice, but this is definitely like a complete story told in 43 minutes. I just, it's yeah. an older way of telling stories, but it's a way that I find very refreshing compared to most of the content that's out now. Yeah. I, and I think prestige storytelling is like, there's a lot of good storytelling that is available Absolutely. in that format. But there are things where it's like, I don't know that this needed to be eight episodes to tell a four episode story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and with this, it's like every episode is a self-contained story and then usually like a little thread for a larger narrative. 
mm-hmm, happening mm-hmm. in the background. It's, it kind of reminds me of like classic 80s and 90s comic book storytelling. Where it's like, yeah, okay, we yeah. got our A plot for 18 of these 22 epi- uh, uh, pages in this comic book, but four pages are, devo- are devoted to the B plot to remind you there's something else simmering in the background. I mean, another piece of trivia for you, since you brought up comic books, Matt Nix was also, I believe, the showrunner behind the X-Men television show The Gifted, which did not have a long run on television, but (laughs) that was his major project after Burn Notice. And he's one of those names because he was so like I somehow I know him as like the creator of Burn Notice and um that that name matt nix and burn notice like they they worked i don't know if it was reading press at the time or whatever but i have that association and so mm-hmm. i'm always kind of like what's he gonna do next <laughs> like because because the identity of burn notice with him writing the pilot and you know being the showrunner and uh you know writing so many of the episodes and and like me enjoying that i'm like he's a really good storyteller so what what's next and i i always want you know the, the next thing when i find a show like this that i love i'm like i want everyone involved with it to have a good next chapter um and you said like the gift didn't end up having a very long chapter <laughs> yeah. but i'll be interested in whatever he does next <laughs> for a notice reunion movie make it happen <laughs> Uh, the only Emmy nominations it received were for Sharon Glass as Best Supporting Actress and Deserved. I just want to say that on there. Um, and it also had a nomination for Sound Mixing. Sharon Glass, television veteran, uh, starred in Cagney, of La- Cagney and Lacey, of course. She just, she's one of those that like, she's owning the screen when she's on it and just the way she stands and, and her voice as she reads lines. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. there's something magnetic here. <laughs> absolutely what she's doing and and she's given often uh like somewhat comedic uh things to do as again like a miami retiree who has no time for this business that her son is involved in uh and yet keeps getting pulled into it oh such a great juxtaposition oh so there's so much to love about this series (laughs) all right well before we move on to the summary of this episode we want to thank you for downloading this episode and we especially want to thank those of you who support us on patreon if you'd like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month all supporters on patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we have been consuming that we're not yet covering as full episodes of the protagonist podcast and all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss on to the summary for this uh episode and feel free if you feel like i've gone done not enough service to any moments that were your favorites <laughs> feel free to jump in anna because I, <laughs> um, I i had a narrow window of time in which i could write the summary and i may have abbreviated some things where i'm like oh i know she's gonna want to expand on that a little <laughs> um so uh the MacGuffin for the storyline is a thumb drive which is a classic spy MacGuffin at this point <laughs> the, the computer thumb drive <laughs> is is uh just it doesn't really matter what's on it anymore it's just something the spies want in this case it is a list of names of spies of course um it was Michael cooler has it was much cooler when those were on mini discs for a while circa first mission impossible film but i'll settle for mm-hmm. the thumb drive yeah i mean what what do they do now that it's all in the cloud <laughs> Uh, but Michael has the thumb drive. His corrupt former handler, Vaughn, is tracking him. Michael wants to reach someone high enough in the government who can strike a deal for protection for Michael and his crew and also get Michael back in as an official spy. Like he's he's been doing this, you know, off the book spy stuff for long enough. Um, Sam and Michael's mom go to a congressman who they think would use the list to gain political power, but also, uh, you know, benefit Michael in this process. Um, Vaughn, uh, again, the corrupt, uh, man who wants the, the thumb drive. He has many armed men with him and is tracking Michael down. Michael's plan 
initially is to get the thumb drive onto a truck heading to a nuclear power plant, believing that even Vaughn won't be able to get into that secure of a facility to get to the thumb drive. Uh, Michael and Fiona are involved in a car chase. And (laughs) during the car chase, they're also discussing their futures. (laughs) Uh, but they can't get all the way to the power plant. Uh, and eventually uh, there's lots of explosions and car accidents in this car chase. And they run to a hotel that is under construction. Uh, a friend who's been added to the series this season named Jesse uh, ha- has been helping them. And he gets wounded in the leg. Uh, and that's mostly so that he's kind of out of commission. Because this is going to be about Michael and Fiona in this hotel room. Uh, Michael, the, the thing, wants- Wait, I do want to add something to that description. Because an important thing happens in that car chase, which is that the iconic car of the series, Michael's Charger, which he inherits from his father, which he had been driving around as his iconic car, which isn't a very ironic car for him since it's the absolute worst car for a spy because it's so conspicuous and so slow and so dumb. <laughs> And he supposedly hates it, but had fallen in love with it. Um, He has to explode his car in that car chase, which is some of those stakes and signals that we're going to have a change of direction in the series moving forward. Yeah, and um, you get a really good voiceover where he's, I can't remember exactly how he puts it, but he says basically like, uh, in a car chase, all that matters are the vehicle that's getting you from point A to B or the obstacles that's stop, stopping the other car from getting up to you. And if mm-hmm. your car is not getting the job done, it can become the obstacle to the other car. And that's when mm-hmm. he, he crashes or blows up his car uh, mm-hmm. to make a roadblock. Um, so when they're in this hotel, I believe it is that's under construction, Michael wants to get up to the roof to activate an emergency weather equipment thing that's up there. That's going to bring authorities to go check it out because emergency weather in Miami is a very big deal and you can't have that stuff malfunctioning. Uh, but there are men with guns everywhere trying to find him. So Michael and Fiona fashion a distracting explosive device that will uh, draw their attention while he gets up to the roof and he gets up there. But a man with a gun awaits. They fight a lot uh, for a while. <laughs> Uh, Michael wins (laughs) and then he activates the weather alert device and then he uses the man's body as a counterbalance as he repels down the side of the building and gets shot shot at by dozens of of bullets (laughs) come flying towards him Uh, but he repels very quickly (laughs) no one can get him (laughs) and he gets back into the hotel Um, so uh, now Michael and Fiona are going to talk us more about where they're at in their lives as they make some more improvised explosive devices. They made quite a few <laughs> explosive devices so many, in this episode. So many. I, I, I didn't really like catch it as I was watching it. It just kind of like is part of the flow of the series. But as I'm writing, I'm like, was that really a different time they were making explosive advice? It was. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm writing down the summary, it's like, oh, okay. Uh, Vaughn is going to contact them. Vaughn has caught Michael's mother and is using her as collateral to try and make him come out now. Uh, Michael makes a plan to give Jesse the drive, then lure Vaughn and his men into a room that is rigged to explode. Uh, Fiona is helping Jesse to leave when she decides that she should be with Michael, and she runs back to that room knowing that they're likely to die. As Vaughn is ready to move in, swarms of differently are, well, more men, different armed men arrive. Okay, so there's more people with guns that are coming now. (laughs) And they arrest Vaughn and his men the congressman has come through and uh, had a different government agency than the one that Vaughn is corruptly working for come and arrest Vaughn and his men. So now Michael is taken back to Washington, D.C., where he's welcome back where he belongs. Or does he actually belong back in Miami with Fiona? It's a season finale. You're going to have to wait six months to find out. The end. Oh, would have been so painful. Although I have thoughts about that, too, because I was like, this is a very 
like kind season finale because although there is a cliffhanger of what's going on in dc what's michael gonna do what's gonna happen we don't end on the cliffhanger of them in the building are they gonna blow themselves up which i feel like a lesser show would have put us through that pain and burn notice it's a very classic move to to do that Uh, (laughs) like like a finger on a trigger uh, you know or Mm -hmm. or on on the the igniter you know what what, you know that that's the final shot of like what's about to happen but at least this is a show that's yeah it's like kind to the audience it gives us that little bit of closure but still with a different cliffhanger different from the one you might expect um so you said this show has ended up like just resonating with you (laughs) and like like it's presenting so much of you know so many things that interest you on the silver platter in a very palatable presentation saying please consume this uh what do you think it is that is exactly that grabs you that much about about burn notice that made you you know tweet out into the universe that you want to talk about this on a podcast and that's why we're here right now well my two main interests in terms of genres are spies and superheroes and they have a lot in common i'm often interested in performative masculinities which is something that's very much a part of the spy genre and yeah i mean they're performing masculinity that's what you do when you're a spy you perform different masculine identities and that's how you're successful and i find that very fascinating as somebody who studies gender and obviously i find that very fascinating in the superhero genre too which also has something like the secret identity convention and that kind of thing so with the character of michael weston i find it very interesting the way this character is sort of playing with 21st century masculinities and revising elements of the james bond you know mm-hmm archetype because it is that thing you know he has to go back and sort of deal with the fractured relationships with his mother and with his ex-girlfriend and i don't want to be like i don't think it's simplistic in the sense that his mother like uh madeline maddie and fiona are not like angel in the house type characters it's Mm -hmm. not like he has to go back and they're these moral paragons and he has to be more like them it's not like that it's more that no no it is not like that at all (laughs) (laughs) so like not like that at all i would not label either of those women as moral paragons of virtue and nothing else (laughs) and that's part of what's good about it right because it's more that he has to go back and deal with being emotionally connected with people and deal with the fact that being a spy exempted him from having to have those types of relationships and deal with the fact that he actually does want family and has convinced himself that he doesn't. It also negotiates the propaganda element really interestingly and I think quite effectively, although not in a way that it's not politically problematic. Like, I mean, <laughs> I've written a bunch of burn notice fan fiction because I'm that kind of fan. And looking up things for accurate details like the types of guns used on the show and stuff going into the uh fandom of all of that side of the show was really eye-opening to me in terms of a lot of people are watching the show for that and i don't want to ignore that aspect of it but i do think that there's a really interesting contrast between burn notice and 24 which was sort of a contemporary of its um for many of its seasons where like to me 24 is much more invested in the fantasy of the cia as heroic there's obviously like bad actors in that show and stuff too yeah. there's the mole in every season it's a very corrupt organization <laughs> that's a huge part of that show too but it's like more explicit in burn notice in the sense mm-hmm. that like he is fired from that job and the levels of corruption are infinite 
there is nothing good about the CIA, like by the end of Burn Notice, and him having to reckon with the way that organization has manipulated him emotionally and physically and made him a cog in the machine, even as he thought he was becoming empowered through what they offered him. There's a lot of interesting things in terms of masculinity and in terms of the arc of that character, understanding the ways that frankly patriarchal masculinity has hurt him and that's part of the character too i mean part of his backstory is that he was abused by his father and this has something to do with the way he is and that's brought up very explicitly in a number of episodes there's a great episode where he has to play his father in a role to kind of get at somebody and it just like really is difficult for him because he has to embody this man that he associates with abuse and physical violence and it's really upsetting to him And so there's all these really interesting things with that character and kind of the stoicism and the sarcasm of the character is a way of commenting on those things. But it's also very clearly this mask that the character wears that breaks at key moments. And (laughs) Jeffrey Donovan does this thing that I know because I'm in that fan community, or at least I used to be, that just women love because it is very much like a convention of characters in romance novels which is that he pretends to be so hard and tough, and yet that's so clearly a mask for the deep romanticism and emotionalism that is lurking just below the surface. And you see moments of that in this episode where he's saying very cold things to Fiona, and yet his eyes are like wet with tears. (laughs) It's just so so corny and so effective. Um, Yeah, and as a show that is as you're saying, like navigating masculinity or exploring masculinity, I think Sam Axe is another interesting counterpoint um, to that where, you know, Bruce Campbell has a very sardonic line delivery, Mm -hmm, I guess mm -hmm. I would say, Uh, but he's playing this character that was once a powerful spy, but is now kind of a beach bum, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just kind of bumming off anyone. (laughs) that's that that will that will help him out uh and then also still drawing on his old expertise to to help michael out um remind me i know there's some tension with sam and michael but i only watched through the series once and it's not coming to me what what was you know what's at the core of their relationship together it's not necessarily that they have tension it's more that there was tension with fiona and sam because he had turned Mm. her in at one point so their relationship was like a little bit fractured Mm. Michael and Sam's relationship actually is pretty okay, other than there's a tension between their different ways of doing things. And that's part of what Michael has to learn, too. He has to learn respect for Sam in some ways, which I think is sort of an interesting through line. Again, if we're going to talk about comparing masculinities to, you know, I think about certain iconic scenes that represent these characters so well. And I remember an early scene where... (laughs) Michael is working out in his apartment shirtless and then goes to his fridge to get a yogurt because (laughs) yogurt is a thing in this show. And then Sam is there in his Hawaiian shirt eating an entire bucket of KFC. And then they just like exchange a glance and like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) but that's so effective, right? You know, like having different types of masculinity in a show is another way that you can sort of talk about something like masculinity and like when I say talk about masculinity it's not that I think that this show is doing all of these things in this academic way and this is the point of the show but even if you're not picking up on those things in an academic way I think that is a way that you can pick up 
on it. Like you can pick up on it emotionally as a viewer. You know, Mm -hmm. these shows in the Blue Sky era often had these masculine protagonists who were very accessible. And a lot of these shows were very popular with women as well as gay men, I will add. And it was these kind of male characters who were super competent and attractive, but also had a strain of sensitivity to them. And that was very much part of the selling point of the Blue Sky era in general. Like a lot of these shows were very like domestic and romantic, like in a a way that, you know, some things aren't. And they were very much going for that audience. And that's another thing I find interesting about this era. Yeah, um, I, th- I think you raise a lot of good points. Um, and Sam is um, a-, a character who I think so much of it is just the Bruce Campbell voice that yeah. is, is like what resonates in my head <laughs> when I th- when I think of Sam. Uh, and Bruce Campbell is one of those actors that doesn't necessarily disappear into roles, right? Yeah. He's always Bruce Campbell. <laughs> You're hiring Bruce Campbell. But like, I mean, it's great the contrast between those characters too in terms of like this as a Bruce Campbell role because I mean, Bruce Campbell is this guy who like plays the sardonic, hyperbolic, you know, male action hero, but like subverts that trope, you know, in, in his cult movies from the 90s. And then having him here as this character brings that context with it. But it's also like... Uh, Michael is embodying aspects of who Bruce Campbell used to be in some ways. And you see like them kind of playing off of each other in those ways. I don't know. It mm-hmm. does some good intertextual stuff with the, with the Bruce Campbell casting. If you're interested, like if you're, if you're familiar with the star text of Bruce Campbell, I think you'd find that quite enjoyable. Yeah. And it's one of those, like the, the metatextual element is just a layer mm-hmm. that you can appreciate if you're aware of it, but it rides the line well of not making you have to be aware of it to appreciate what's mm-hmm. going on. Exactly. That's a good way uh, of putting it there's some shows that become a little too winky for me where it's like, okay, not every audience member is in on this joke and you've just made like the whole scene, the joke. And mm-hmm, I don't think mm-hmm. it's going to really land or connect or, or it becomes a distraction. Right. Uh, and I don't think this, this um, gets into that. Um, and I, I think another part of what I found engaging about the show is that, and I think this, this is a nod to what you were saying about like these, the way that masculinity is portrayed or, or these emotionally available men or um, the facade of that, you have moments like the car chase where there's the high action drama of a choreographed car chase that's happening on uh, or happening on screen. But the real drama is the conversation between Michael. and Yeah. Yeah. Um, That, that it's the emotional stakes are what is actually going to be engaging the audience. Even as this is, there's this very visceral um, kinetic imagery that's happening on screen the dialogue is like what people are actually hanging on. Well, yeah, because there's two, there's at least two ways of sort of looking at that kind of thing. If you're talking about a show like this or, you know, any kind of action show, you know, is the action an excuse for conversations or the conversations an excuse for action or while there's the emotional content an excuse for action. I would say the emotional content is at the center of this episode and drives Mm -hmm. the action spectacles. Yeah. And um, it, it, ends up creating this uh fun juxtaposition right uh, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. even as both things are serious right and in one case like deadly serious <laughs> and in another case uh like emotionally stakes uh, emotional stakes have been raised to the highest point uh for for an audience if they're like four years in to the series right for fiona and michael to actually be having these kinds of conversation is such a release but the juxtaposition also becomes kind of like 
totally fun and uh and you almost kind of find yourself smirking right at Mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. um you know the the difference that's happening there and to have like two different high-end uh you know uh aspects occurring that are so counterpoint to each other um ends up becoming almost like joyful to watch and and how the presentation of it is is given to us as viewers it's like oh there's there's something going on here that's just delightful because it's one of those shows like as you said i sometimes the show can be a little bit winking this particular episode isn't that much but i mean Mm -hmm. again thinking about those voiceovers which you talked about earlier i mean the sardonic like sarcastic delivery of those voiceovers and many of them are like deliberately funny because Mm -hmm. he'll be talking about how to turn a microwave and hairspray into a bomb (laughs) it's just like i mean it's very self-conscious i'm I'm not trying to say this show isn't winking the show definitely does but it's not about like do you know Mm. bruce campbell's role in this obscure 1993 independent film yeah Uh, yeah, and this this scene is a reference to that and if you do you understand why the scene is here and if you don't it has no purpose in the show like they always give bruce like there's always a purpose of what's going on but the show absolutely does wink to the audience and and has a playfulness uh in the presentation of the action yeah and that's like a way that it helps balance that propaganda element again right because it's Mm -hmm. kind of uh it's de facto self-reflexive even though i wouldn't really say it's postmodernly self-reflexive but it's self-reflexive in that way that action comedies are right you mm-hmm. know it's action and it's comedy so it's inherently on some level making fun of the action elements like through the incorporation of comedy and i don't want to say subverting the action elements through the incorporation of romance but definitely a huge appeal of this show for me is the fact that it does have romance at the center of it and doesn't sideline that in the way that most other action narratives do i mean i compared it to the a-team the a-team does not have anything like the michael fiona relationship Uh in it ever they would introduce women in that show who might be present for one episode and then would get (laughs) or like would be present for a season or so and would actually get fired at the behest of the male actors in the show because they hated women being present on the show at all (laughs) which you know that's the misogyny of the 80s but it's also how that genre typically works so to have Mm -hmm. fiona be so central to the show and also to have her be an instigator of a lot of the action on the show like one of the iconic Mm -hmm. sort of little scenes for michael and fiona that often gets shared around as like a fandom meme to describe their relationship is them having a little exchange where she says you know or no i think he says to her like oh, my brains and your brawn, right? Because there's a little bit of a role reversal that happens with them where she's the explosive expert, you know, Mm -hmm. she's the IRA terrorist. She's (laughs) incredibly violent and incredibly reckless and all of those things and frequently immoral, much more so than him. And Mm -hmm. it's not that he is not an action character, but he is the planner and she often is the one that facilitates guns and explosives and all of those things, which she very much does in this episode. Yeah, it, and like her role isn't as girlfriend. Uh, like mm-hmm. she is a huge participant in all of the violence <laughs> that takes yes. place in this show, and is incredibly adept and is is a master of violence. Um, you know, mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, so often you see now, like anytime a woman is in that kind of role, like you you can hear a segment of the internet rolling their eyes and, and screaming woke. <laughs> but um the kind of violence she enacts with guns and explosives feels like something that 
she would have mastered in the backstory that we're given for her. Uh, and it does absolutely feel key to her character and not just an add on, um, you know, to, to try and uh, update the idea of the bond girl or anything like that. Yeah. Because she starts off the series very much in a kind of bond girl, femme fatale role, but as her character becomes deeper and as the relationship with her and Michael becomes deeper, she steps out of that role and becomes a more fully fledged character. And I think this is a really important episode for that character in terms of that narrative. Like she's great in this episode. Like Gabrielle Anwar is just like at her best here. Like she starts off the episode so cool and calm and controlled like both in terms of her delivery but also in terms of her comportment you know her hair is very done she's looking great as she always does and by the end of the episode she is filthy and sweaty and crying and angry and all of these things she has a really good arc in the course of this episode yeah and it's she always gives good performances as as, um as as fiona I really do like the cast. Like I said, uh, just like revisiting. I'm like, oh, it's just so good to have these people on my screen again. (laughs) I want to go to a rewatch of the series uh, to to pull it up again. Uh, I heard somebody describe the cast one time in a way that I thought really made sense to me that like they're all beautiful people, but with scars, you know, they're all beautiful mm -hmm. people, but with something a little bit off about them. And uh, I mean, another one of the things that I really like about uh, Gabriel Anwar in this role is that often with these roles you see the guy being a lot older than the woman and that's not the case here she is not a young woman when she stars in this show and i mean young is a loaded term but you know Mm -hmm. she was like in her late 30s when this show started and she wasn't like a 22 year old so i like that too you know she's like someone who's who's been around and brings that experience and, and gravitas to it um I think we, I mean, we may have addressed some of this already, but Michael Weston as protagonist of this series, if you were going to try and like, I guess, boil him down to like, what is essential about Michael Weston and why this is a character that carried a show that developed a very fervent fandom, a fandom that still is going on today. What do you think it is about this character uh, that people have latched on to? Ah. <sighs> I think it's a character that can appeal to a lot of people in different ways. The sardonic wit of the character is definitely central. That's present in the voiceovers. You know, he controls how the story is presented because of the monologue that he delivers, right? So that's a huge part of it. But again, I also do think it's the way that he's very complex and sensitive, like under that veneer and the ways that the character becomes very identifiable because you see through things like the history of abuse, which is brought up way at the beginning of the show. Like the reason he left home is because of the abuse of his father. And, you know, the anger that he has at his mother is because she didn't protect him from that abuse. That is like there in episode one of the show and carries throughout the show. So the fact that you can see why he might have adopted sort of that sarcastic veneer, you know, it's both an empowerment fantasy you know the ways that he is able to rely on that to empower himself but then the humanization of it by having that very identifiable very real very painful backstory for that character you know with James Bond we're kind of they've done his backstory you know and developed it in in later stories but you're mostly just dropped into that world and you don't know why he's like this you know you don't have any mm-hmm. particular reason why he's like this but you it's very different in burn notice there's sort of a humanization of of that character and like how he became this person and yeah it's just i think that that's like a big part of it i think that <sighs> 
the hyper competence of him as well like which veers into hilarity so often is a huge appeal i mean it's a show that like you watch and you're laughing at it but you're really laughing with it because it's self-conscious about what it's doing but i often think that it would be so perfect to have jeffrey donovan doing the michael weston voice like for a gps system it would be (laughs) the most enjoyable thing in the entire world and if i was a rich person i would pay him to record that for me or even if he was just doing like voiceovers of like mundane how-to tasks on youtube great great (laughs) like i've got a jam at my disposal what do i do I can never really tell if he's a good actor or not. I've seen him in other things. I, I, He's good in some other things, but I also think he's just so perfect in this role. Because even some of the limitations that I would say he has as an actor, like he's got a very dry line delivery. Like he's an actor that you can kind of accuse of just reading lines sometimes. But mm-hmm. in this case, that's very deliberate and becomes part of the self-reflexivity of the show because he shows a lot of range in an episode like this. Like there are those moments of like humanness that I keep talking about where he kind of breaks character and there are those moments where he's just very dryly explaining the spy plan and I think his ability to kind of yeah like include those layers of the character and sort of make us believe that a guy could have these layers and that these layers make sense I mean it's one of those roles where I mean obviously I can't imagine anybody else in that role it's like his role and I have a hard time when I see him in other things not just thinking it's Michael Weston it's a very typecasty role for him mm-hmm. and I, I mean I don't know if I would have known who he was before this like in any I'm sure he was in some things before but I think this is like you said this is who he is now <laughs> for mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of fans uh which is a blessing and a curse when you have a show that becomes that associated with you as as an actor um as you were going through things, like so often you said something that like, it was directly in my head. Like you said, hypercompetence, as I was about to say the words hypercompetence out loud. <laughs> uh, but I think what get, what, you, what you find paired is um, he is simultaneously a bit broken, but also yes, so yes. in control, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so we've got this performance side of him where like, okay, in this situation, I know exactly what to do. But like, when he's alone by himself, he's not in a good place. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that is definitely part of the appeal uh, for the the fans that become invested in the show is uh, the, this that that blend of someone who's like broken but not like incompetent at life anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's like yeah. oh, he, he he still could be improved, right? Even though he's really good at what he does, uh, like there's still room for improvement, and and he needs some of that. Um, that reconnection with his mother and that uh, reconnection with his ex-girlfriend that is going to be healing uh, for him. And you, you know, the series is allowed to breathe and extend that transformation across a very long time. Um, But it also doesn't feel like some shows, like they, they forget to provide any closure on those sorts of things. (laughs) It just starts to feel drawn out uh, forever. Um, But like you feel, I I think they give you enough like benchmarks throughout uh, that's like, okay, there's been an improvement right in, in his yeah. relationship with his mother, you know, there's been advancement, uh, you know, in the, in this particular, uh, episode that we're talking about in his relationship with Fiona, that's not mm-hmm. waiting for the season seven series finale. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the complaint that you would make of the serialization of Burn Notice would be that every single season he finds another layer of the people that burned him, and then it just kind of continues, <laughs> and he's always the same thing. I mean, well, that would well, be the complaint. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. But also, it's kind of like, this, this is what we're here to watch. <laughs> it's, it's him working through these. Uh, and if we want another season, there's going to have to be another layer. That, that's just exactly. the, the way this, this goes. Uh, but also, these weren't, um, because it was on USA, I don't think these were like the 22 or 24 episode seasons. I think they were all shorter. Uh, I mean, I guess I can go double check that, um, which I, I think helps to not feel. I almost said burned out, but that feels like I'm making a pun. Mm. <laughs> but that's slightly oh, yeah. more compressed, uh, yeah. you know, runtime or for a season. Um, well, yeah, eight, I think they, they're probably between 18 and 22 because this particular oh, season, this is, this is this is the last one of this season, okay. and it's episode 18. I think a couple of the earlier seasons were shorter. Yeah, because I think when I was looking up, I thought like season one, I think was only 13 or 14 episodes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so yeah, it, um, even if it is like at the end of the season, oh no, there's another layer. It's not like, yeah, okay. It looks like uh, between 12 and 18 episodes is every season. That makes sense. Uh, uh, like even some episodes of like something like The Office, it's like, okay, we're like 26 episodes into the season and I don't think they expected this. <laughs> And, mm-hmm, and they don't know mm-hmm. what they're doing right now <laughs> um, to, to try and reach an end. Uh, so it, I think the pacing actually does work out all right, even though uh, you definitely have a point of like, okay, how many layers to this onion are going to be peeled back? <laughs> yeah, I don't support um, the seventh season, which is very different than many of the earlier seasons, but it still wraps up season? the show. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> It's a lot that like, happens I read about in that them, like, season. That is like, yeah, go renegotiate, like the to be able to have their sets. I'm like, that mm-hmm. sounds to me like someone wasn't planning ahead, and the network mm-hmm. was kind of like, do one more, <laughs> let's run it back one more time. And I was like, oh, okay. It's also the, it, one of the shortest seasons. It's only 13 episodes yeah. in that season, so I'm it wondering. It's not if beloved season... by fans. I'll say that much. Yeah, and I mean, all of that makes me think maybe it wasn't expected. Maybe they thought season six was wrapping everything up. Hmm when I reached out to you and said, do you want to come talk about burn notice? I also asked like, do you have a favorite episode? This is a series that I remember enjoying, but I, I don't really have a whole lot of episodes that I was like, okay, that's, that's, you know, the moment I have to go talk about. And very quickly, you knew what episode I think you wanted to talk about. And it was this one. So um, is, is there anything in particular about this episode that resonates with you? Yeah. I mean, definitely the climax of the episode with Michael and Fiona in the building uh going to blow each other up which is like well basically going to sacrifice their lives together (laughs) very romantic but i will make an argument for why that's so perfect for their relationship Mm -hmm. but also this is just a really cruel crafted episode in terms of uh sort of establishing stakes and establishing i think i mentioned this earlier but like a degree of realism that this show doesn't always have like as i was rewatching it there's a little subversion early in the episode where you know they think they're going to do this nuclear power plant thing and like blow something up and that's their plan and it seems like a very typical burn notice plan they've got everything under control but within 10 minutes of the episode all of that plan is out the window they've blown up michael's car and they're holed up in this hotel and then most of the rest of the episode is just the siege in the hotel and so there's thing after thing where they come up with the typical MacGyvery burn notice plan oh we're gonna bomb the stairwell and then we're going to go down the elevator shaft and this is what we're going to do and just time and time again like those plans get subverted and like the stakes get raised you know it's sort of the inexorable march of like the institutions that are opposing 
these three people trapped in the hotel who are just getting sweatier and Jesse just keeps bleeding more and more and is clearly in bad shape and tensions are high and you have no idea how they're going to get out of it, right? And then you have them kidnapping Michael's mom because they seems like they're going to have the plan and then that happens and then that's when they come up with like the suicide bomb idea. So there's all of that going on. But then the notes of Michael and Fiona's relationship are just woven so well into the episode. Like we have her mm -hmm. very early in the episode say explicitly to Michael, if you get back in with these people, what's going to happen to us? And he gives kind of a bullshit answer of like, basically, we're done. We were never a thing, blah, blah, blah. And then over the course of the episode, you see in that like I'm not saying that this isn't problematic but you do see the way Michael cares for her in kind of those gestures of humanity hidden behind that facade leading up to the moment where they almost die together and you see her reckoning with what it means to love this person and she has a really key line her and Jesse are going to escape with the list and Michael is going to do the suicide bomb thing and draw the attention of all of the people who are trying to shoot them and she has a line to Jesse like no I'm gonna go back and he's like you know what'll happen if you go back and and she's like, yeah, I know. I belong out there with him for better or worse. I knew that the moment I met him, you know, that it was going to end in this way. Right. And it's very dark. Like these are two characters who are literally combustible characters who in some ways are bad for each other, but in some ways are also very good for each other because out of all of the people in the entire world, no one would understand these people as well as they understand each other. And isn't that the basis of a great relationship, even if the most romantic thing you can think to do together is to die in a blaze of glory <laughs> like, in a cabana in an abandoned Miami hotel? But that moment, like, I remember watching this episode the first time. I have a specific memory of it. I wasn't watching it when it was first on, but um, I was watching it a few years later. So I at least had all the episodes at my disposal. I didn't have to wait six months for the conclusion. But... I remember I'd wa I was watching it with my then partner and we were both really into the show, but he had work to do or something. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I just really want to watch this next episode. So I'm going to go ahead and watch it without you. And so I'm watching this episode without him. And then they got to that moment where they almost die together. And I'm like rushing into the office. Like you have no idea what just happened. Oh my God. I just, I can't even, I was like speechless. I was so <laughs> blown away by this episode and every time I rewatch it I remember how blown away I was by this episode but you know that's maybe a loaded choice of words for this situation but <laughs> again that moment in the cabana though she comes in they have sort of an exchange of angry sarcastic dialogue and then you have both of them break into kind of moments of pure emotion and Jeffrey Donovan does some of his best work like I think in the entire series in that moment where they decide they're going to do the suicide bomb together. You know, when the moment comes, we'll do this together. And he looks at her and he's crying and like also smiling almost deliriously. And think about what that moment means to this character who has kept himself emotionally distanced from people, but also been so emotionally distanced from people to have this person reach out to him in this way. And in a way that he understands because he's got a complete martyr complex. So, you know, Fiona meeting him <laughs> with that same martyr complex is a form of love he understands. 
right? I mean, that's the thing I'm saying, like these two characters for all of their darkness, for all that these are not good decisions that people should make. No one should do this. I don't recommend it. But they understand each other so perfectly. And that recognition in that moment with how stoic he's been throughout the episode, like how he left her in the hotel, because a huge part of the reason why she runs out after him is because he wouldn't say goodbye to her. He has an emotional moment saying goodbye to Jesse. And then Fiona's like, no words for me. And he's like, you're better off on your own and turns and just the heartbreak of that moment. <laughs> and, you know, she, so she partly goes back to chew him out, you know, to be like, you know, mm-hmm. F you, how could you leave me that way? But that's part of the nature of their relationship too. You know, her challenging him to admit that he loves her. And she does that mm-hmm. by doing this. And then they don't explode and their relationship is going to be very different after this. Okay. This is going to be very strange to say when, as you have noted, like their big romantic togetherness is mm-hmm. as they're about to die uh, mm-hmm. and, and blow things up. But <clears throat> both these characters are deeply flawed <laughs> and have a lot Definitely. of issues <laughs> that they need to work out. And, but the way it gets presented within each other is not toxic to one another, right? Yeah, and yeah. so often people who are broken in the way that we're kind of saying Michael Weston is broken, it ends up being toxic for anyone who interacts with him. Um, but it doesn't present in a negative uh, interaction outward towards Fiona, which is why I think this relationship feels right. They're like, like they're broken together and, and they're better versions of themselves when they're together, even though they're both broken. Yes. Uh, and, and, and I, I, I know, I don't know how to reconcile that with saying their big romantic gesture is going to be to blow up lots of other people and themselves simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> but well, it, somehow a, it works. A, yeah. Like, the propulsive <laughs> action of the episode doesn't make you stop and like question all of that. It's just you, like you're, you're in your feelings as, as you're watching this play out. And this is very much, this is their marriage. I mean, I just quoted that line of like, for better or worse, I belong out there with him. Like, this is the moment where the characters, you know, are going to be tied together forever. And the fact that this is the moment that ties them together forever. And I mean, partly it's like, on a storytelling level, it's Fiona buying into the mission that Michael's been on. Because, you know, we're leaving aside, like, they're doing this and they are blowing up a bunch of people, but they are technically blowing up bad people who are mm-hmm. trying to, like, <laughs> kill a lot more people and they're trying to get this list out and it's, like, all supposedly for the greater good. So Fiona is this character who's been morally ambiguous. She is, like, a gun runner. She has, you know... An IRA terrorist, which is complicated because she has like a morality and everything. But in terms of since then, there's been a suggestion that after Michael left her, you know, she was hooked up with some shady people and hasn't always been on the right side of things. But choosing to kind of embrace the mission that he's on is sort of part of her character arc too. And I'm making it sound bad, like, cause I'm making it sound like she's subsuming herself into him. But I don't mm. think it really plays like that because I think, no. again, it plays like so many of the things that he needs to learn about himself, like he learns through her. I do think it's a case where, as you said, sort of the brokenness of these two characters is is good for each other because, again, they understand each other like better than anybody ever could. And yeah, there's another great line that, you know, Michael's mother tells to him at one point, or I think she says it to Fiona, actually, that, you know, like he's better when he, when he's with you which is something Mm -hmm. that people often say to people in relationships, but a very meaningful thing for her to recognize and very meaningful to her, for her to acknowledge that Fiona, this hyper violent, deeply flawed character is right for Michael. She's what he needs. Mm 
And I, I mean, we're, we're kind of acknowledging there's some strangeness in in how this mm-hmm. finale is, is feels emotionally resonant as something so violent is about to happen but the violence in the show is so hyperbolic and yeah. uh they're escalating everything and so like there's there's nowhere else for them to go but blowing each other <laughs> you know, yeah exactly up. well that's the, that's the thing though like uh, i mean to, to that's what the stakes kind of... elevating yeah uh you know within within the series and it makes you buy into it because after plan after plan fails, this is literally all they had left. Like there were no other options left. So it makes you buy into the suicide mission on that level. And that's another one of the things that I think is really effective about the writing of this episode, because for this kind of dark, tragic, romantic moment to work, there has to be so much buildup to make you buy into it. And partly that's the four seasons of Burn Notice leading up to that. But again, this episode also really sells you on it in terms of threading that relationship conflict through the episode. And again, in terms of exhausting all other options, like they're forced into this moment and that's what makes it more of a romantic tragedy rather than just an incident of like reckless martyrdom. Like it really is Mm -hmm. the only choice that they had left and that's where the tragedy is. And it, it, it's something about the the tone that the show manages to strike, where so much of a that we've we've acknowledged is like winking, tongue in cheek, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, jokiness is part of the show, and this finale could almost be like a parody of a spy, you know, <laughs> it's a spy mm-hmm. movie with how far they are pushing the stakes and the action and the weapons and the explosions, uh, and, and where this like emotional uh, display where where like some of the facade is finally going to fall down is like in something that is so hyper violent, like just so incredibly excessively pushed to the limit of what could be, and yet it's played straight in that moment, and it manages to hit the emotional note they're they're trying yeah. to hit. Um, yeah. And I think there's a lot of craft that has to be taken to to be able to successfully do like like in the opening of the show. There's this joke where like Vaughn finally gets on you know direct communication with Michael, and it's like it's your yeah. old pal Vaughn, and they put on screen not his pal. Yeah, <laughs> you know, is like the the subtitle they give Vaughn because they're always labeled like when a new character has an entrance in the in an episode, they often will like say the name and what their role is, and his role was not his pal, even as the verbal dialogue was just it's your old pal Vaughn. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of joke is there at the beginning of this episode, and then at the end there's this really serious moment and, and it still feels of one piece. So I want to like give respect to the level of craft to, to, to juggle all those different tonalities successfully. Yeah, for sure. And that's why it's so affecting too, because you don't necessarily, I mean, Burn Notice had had big emotional moments before, but still this was a particularly realistic emotional moment for this show that doesn't often go to that place. And that makes a scene like this really stand out. And I mean, you know, like similar to Bond, we don't often see Bond break or seem afraid like the way, you know, Michael seems both happy and delirious and afraid and sad and hopeful, like so many things in that moment where he's like having like the crying laughter as he holds the bomb with Fiona and like they don't kiss, but they symbolically do through that moment of connection. And what it really reminds me of, I was like bringing in the James Bond thing, is the James Bond movie Honor Majesty's Secret Service with Diana Rigg as the Bond girl who has her own glorious legacy in spidem through the tv show the avengers not the marvel one the british one (laughs) and you know there's a moment in that movie where james bond is hurt and lost and she saves him and he loves her because of her ability to save him and again that sounds bad if you're thinking about 
it, if it was like that angel in the house thing, like you know, she's saving him through her purity or something, but it's not that she's saving him through her capacity to exist in his violent world and like be his equal in that world. And that becomes what the character is attracted to. And I think when you're watching that as a woman, you like that too, right? They get to be co-adventurers in this space, which again is something that almost never happened until relatively recently in something like the Bond franchise. And I thank you so much for this discussion. It <laughs> went in places I had no like. I I love it when I have no idea what where it's going to go. Like when we started an episode, and it's like everything is interesting. Uh, and I think that's a sign of a successful uh, episode or text that we're going to be analyzing. But also, thank you for being a great guest and and helping us to to have a really good conversation about this. Thank you for letting um, me talk I, about burn notice. <laughs> <laughs> It's what we do here. So you're always welcome to come talk about any obsession that you've had. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anna, you have many other projects that, that are going on. Is there anything you would like to plug here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm supposed to be working on a book about Man from Uncle, which would uh, scratch my spy itch. So maybe that will be out in the world in a year or so. Fingers crossed. Okay, we did an episode um, about that on this podcast, and it is one of my favorite episodes we've ever done where it's like I, i'd kind of heard about this and then i like ah oh, yeah okay it's good yeah i'm under contract to write a tv milestones book about the original 60s series so we'll see whether that comes to fruition at some point you can have me back to talk about something related to that maybe but the thing oh, no, that wait, i'm doing never, yeah I, I was we've talked about doing an episode of oh, the, about okay. the, the recent film so many times i thought we'd done it and then i just checked I'm like nope we never actually did do it <laughs> the, the discussion about man from uncle okay well, if you ever want to come talk about Man from Uncle, you're, you now have an open invitation. <laughs> All right. Well, good to know. Good to know. That's another thing I'm very good about gushing about. But the place where you can find me most often these days is on the Ogasha oh Galia Wow podcast, an issue by issue read through of every single issue and some extras of the classic 80s and 90s Marvel comic series Excalibur, a tangential X-Men comic from that era, and we have great guests, scholars, fans on every single week to talk about something interesting in that series. If you like talking about all the stuff we talked about here, about gender and masculinity and action and genre bending, all of that stuff on the Gosh Golly Wow podcast, Joe has been on the podcast. We had a great time. Yeah, and we've had all the the regular hosts uh, on this podcast, and I think also a few of the other guests uh, have floated through both podcasts. It's there's some cross pollination <laughs> when it comes to Absolutely. academic discussions of pop culture uh, between the uh, you know us and and some of Mav's uh, other stuff as well. Well, thank you again, Anna. That is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Talk to you who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Um, let's see here. Uh, there's, uh, I'm trying to remember. I know there's something else I want to get to that we have not, and I'm trying, I, I'm trying to remember if I actually wrote it down or if it was just in my head. So let me go double check here.